0: You can go and have a seat. Wow. So many, so many things to be thankful for, so many things to be excited about. You know, you listen to songs like that, just put you in the mood for Christmas, thinking about the birth of the Savior, thinking about all of the discernment that was necessary in the Christmas story, the discernment of the shepherds as they were instructed to go to Bethlehem, the discernment of the wise men, so much discernment. I mean, it's just uh, really, really Remarkable, and, and we've been working our way through a series together on biblical discernment, on discerning the will of God. And it's been really, really timely for many of us as we're considering big life choices uh, that we're facing. Understanding the difference between God's sovereign will, which can never be thwarted, his moral will for how we should live, and his individual will for what we should do with our lives. It's, it's helped clarify how we should think about the will of God. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but when I start thinking about developing discernment, my mind usually floats to the big decisions that I've made in my life. right? Big relational decisions. Big vocational decisions. Decisions about where to live and what activities to engage in and what activities to not engage in. My mind always gravitates uh, to these high impact, life altering decisions. And to be sure, to be sure, discernment is really important in the biggies, right? We need it. We know we need it. But we learn how to grow in discernment in the smallies. The smallies. All right, if the biggies are what I do, who I'm with, where I live, the smallies, the small things, are basically everything else. Let, let me give you a few examples of some of the smallies. Right? My friend made a sarcastic comment about me in a group chat. Everyone else thought it was hilarious, but it bothered me. Should I call them out on it publicly? Should I wait And handle it privately in a one-on-one conversation? Or should I just let it go? What's the right thing to do? What's the biblical thing to do? How about this one? I was called out during a business meeting, and I didn't appreciate it one bit. Should I fire off this hastily written, tersely worded email? Or should I wait a few minutes? Should I wait and handle it privately in a one-on-one conversation? Or should I just let it go? What's the right thing to do? What's the biblical thing to do? How about this one? I'm in the store with my young children, and all of us are in desperate need of a nap. The sales associate is ignoring me, and all I want to do is buy the three items in my cart and get home. The kids are close to melting down, and I'm not far behind. What choices do I have? Should I leave without the items? Should I wait? Should I demand to speak to a manager? Or is this a teaching moment where the best option is to carefully instruct the sales associate about the meaning of biblical discernment? What's the right thing to do? What's the biblical thing to do? It's the smallies where we learn discernment. We know that we need discernment in the biggies, But discernment is most frequently developed in the smallies. And this is where I would love to insert a great story of learning discernment in the smallies here. Except in this case, I'm afraid I'm the counterexample that makes the point. Sometimes we actually learn more from seeing what not to do uh, than when seeing what to do. Years ago, I was working with a team of people to develop a new telecommunications product. It was hard work, but it was interesting work to me. We spent a lot of time in a lab environment creating and measuring and testing and changing the design to make sure it was just right. And in the middle of that project, I was called upon to take on a new responsibility. How exciting, I thought to myself as I listened to the assignment. I had somehow been selected to mentor a young engineer in the mysterious ways of digital design. To say that I was less than enthusiastic would be giving me way too much credit. I didn't want to do it. I didn't feel prepared to do it. It wasn't interesting to me. And I wondered who on earth had nominated me for this amazing new challenge that I wanted no part of, but it didn't matter. I'd been given the assignment and I was stuck with it. I resented it, I worried about it, and so I decided to tackle the problem head on and head straight back to the lab environment where I didn't have to deal with it at all. It's a very mature and wise decision of me at that point. I don't know what I was thinking. I guess I figured at some point someone else would step up, but that never happened. A few days turned into a week, which turned into a month, and the day finally came where I just, I could not put it off any longer. I had to engage. The conversation with my mentee started slowly as we began to go through the basics. But before long, I found out that I actually enjoyed the process. Shockingly enough, we started to chat about our lives and what we did outside of work before much longer my colleague asked me what i did on the weekend i said well i went to my mom's house for dinner and watched a movie went to church they stopped me they said Wait, wait you went to church what's that like what do you do there and what ensued was an unexpected conversation that lasted for months about who jesus is what he's like who God is, how we can know him, and why it matters, it was completely unexpected to me and unbelievable. And I almost missed it. I almost missed it because I viewed this assignment as an obstacle to what I wanted from my job instead of as an opportunity that God had for me to be able to do something incredible, him to use me in in an amazing way. The smallies They matter. It was a small thing that I was asked to do. Meet with this person. Help them learn the ropes. It was not a big ask. In retrospect, my resistance was childish. And my perspective was incredibly myopic. I had no idea that God was placing an open door of opportunity right in front of me to help someone know about him. He was giving me an opportunity. But all I saw was an obstacle. It's so easy to look at the things that frustrate us and annoy us at inconvenient times and in inconvenient ways and see them as nothing more than obstacles, things that block us or get in our way. It reminds me of how the Israelites might have felt on the cusp of entering the promised land. God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He had given them his covenant law in the form of the Ten Commandments and the other laws in the Old Testament. He had protected them, guided them, to the very edge of the beautiful land that he swore to give them. All they had to do was follow him. All they had to do was go in and take possession of the land. Now, it wasn't going to be easy. They were going to have to do some hard work to take over the land, but God had clearly told them to do it. His instructions could not have been more clear. We read about it in Numbers, 3, or in Numbers 13, where God says to Moses, I want you to send out men to explore the land of Canaan. It's right before they go in. This is the land that I'm giving the Israelites. Send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. So Moses did as, as the Lord commanded him. He sent out 12 men, all tribal leaders of Israel, from their camp in the wilderness of Paran. Notice how God describes the land. It is the land he is giving to the Israelites. The 12 leaders were to explore the land and bring back a report. Simple, straightforward, easy to remember, great. Except for one thing. Ten of the leaders lacked discernment. Ten of the leaders didn't see opportunity. They saw obstacles. The people of the land were big, obstacle. The people of the land were numerous, obstacle. The people of the land were powerful, obstacle. And the Israelites knew that they would be in grave danger if they tried to take the land under their own power. All they saw were walls, obstacles, reasons why they couldn't do it. And so, these ten leaders came back to the community of Israel and induced great fear among them so that they refused to go in and take possession of the land as God had clearly told them to do in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, right? We read, The Lord replied, the Lord's talking to Moses, Listen, I'm making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. I will perform Miracles that have never been performed anywhere in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people around you will see the power of the Lord. The awesome power that I will display for you. But listen carefully to everything that I command you today. Then I will go ahead of you and I will drive out the people. God told the people, I will go ahead of you. I will drive out the inhabitants of the land. I will do it. But when the day came to go in, the people said, no. What was the root cause? Fear. The obstacle was fear. They were afraid and they gave in to their fear instead of trusting in God. All the leaders had to do was bring back a report on the land. Give a report. A small thing. But the obstacles clouded their discernment and prevented them from obeying God. God. Well, just like the Israelites on the cusp of entering the promised land, we all face obstacles that can cause us no small amount of fear and pain and frustration. Fear of loss, the pain of a broken relationship, the frustration with events, with people, with jobs. All of these things, or are these things really the obstacles that they look like, or are they opportunities? In disguise, the smallies are where we learn to develop godly biblical discernment. Fear, however, is not the only obstacle. Esau is another great example of someone who lacked discernment. Esau and his brother Jacob were the grandsons of Abraham, they were twins. But Esau was born first, and in ancient times, that was a big deal. Because it meant that when the father died, the firstborn son would get a double portion of the father's estate. So, when Isaac passed, Esau was slated to receive two-thirds of his estate, and his brother Jacob would only receive one-third. It was called the birthright. In Genesis 25, we read about an encounter between the two boys that highlights Esau's lack of discernment and what can only be categorized as the smallest of the smallies. Uh, We pick it up in verse 27. It says that as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game. Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. One day Jacob was cooking some stew. Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew, which, by the way, is how he got his name (laughs) Red." Well, all right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, Esau said. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first you must swear to me that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. That was one expensive bowl of soup. As far as discernment goes, this one belongs in the biblical hall of shame. What was Esau thinking? What, what caused him to make such a foolish decision to give away such a valuable commodity for soup? I'm sure he wondered the same thing in the many years after he sold his birthright. But the root cause is simple. We see it plain as day, right in the text. The obstacle to Esau's discernment was simply that he was hangry. Esau was tired. Esau was hungry. He felt the need for food deeply. The urgency of his need was screaming at him. The only thing he could think of was about getting his needs met so he did not slow down long enough to process what he was doing as he sold his precious birthright to his opportunistic brother if he had developed even an ounce of discernment, he might have said to Jacob, hey bro, come on, come on. I'm not selling you my birthright for a cup of soup. Or he might have said, look, I'll give you 10 bucks for the soup. Or if you don't give me some of that soup, I'll punch you in the arm. Or I'll tell mom and dad or something, right? But Esau said none of those things. There are a ton of things he could have done, but he didn't. He made a foolish promise. He sold his birthright for soup because he didn't slow down long enough to let his brain catch up with the screaming urgency of the need that he felt in the moment. The sense of urgency can be a major obstacle when it comes to developing and using godly discernment. Urgency screams loudly. Discernment whispers. Urgency demands immediate attention. Discernment requires time and patience. Urgency becomes an all-consuming thing where we feel like we can't think about anything else. Discernment will take a back seat if we don't make space to develop it and to use it. Susan and I have kind of an understanding between us that uh, when we're making a big purchase, if we're feeling the pressure from the salesman that you have to buy it now or the deal will be gone in five minutes, we just walk away. We just walk away. Because if you're, if you're being asked to do something in great haste, it's often the result of, the, of pressure to get you to do something that you otherwise would not do if you had some time to think about it. Esau had a lot of time to stew <laughs> on his hasty decision, and it really ate at him over years. I really do apologize. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sadly, Esau, he never worked at at developing godly, biblical discernment. Have you ever found yourself in a place like Esau? Not that you were so craving a bowl of broccoli cheddar soup that you'd trade your car for it, but, but rather a situation where you had a legitimate need And you felt an incredible sense of urgency to get that need met. Maybe the urgent need was financial. The payment was due. You didn't have the cash on hand in the moment and you were tempted to borrow without asking. Or you were tempted to take something that you had devoted to God and use those resources maybe in another way. Maybe the urgent need was emotional, emotional. You had a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, and you just needed something to get you through the rough spot. Maybe the urgent need was was physical. You felt sick and tired of being sick and tired, and you felt the urgent need for relief. You see, I think it's easy for us to sit back and take pot shots at Esau for his lack of discernment, but it gets a little tougher when we take a step back and we realize We feel urgent needs the same way that he did. Our needs scream at us too. But now that we know that we're more vulnerable in those times, we can learn to lean into God instead of just reaching for whatever happens to be our own personal bowl of comfort soup. The smallies are where we learn to develop godly biblical discernment. Fear is an obstacle. Deep, urgent, unmet needs can be an obstacle to developing godly discernment. But if ever there was an example of someone who completely lacked discernment, it was Samson. Samson's story is detailed in Judges chapters 13 through 16. The period of the Judges in Scripture sits between the liberation of Israel from Egypt and before the period of the kings. That would be like King Saul and David and Solomon. And the period was a rather dark time in Israel's history where they waffled back and forth between worshiping God and worshiping idols and worshiping God and then worshiping other idols. A few of the more well-known judges include Deborah, Gideon, the fleece guy that Dennis talked about last week, and Jephthah. But perhaps none was more well-known and more flawed Than the strong man Samson. In order to understand Samson, you need to know a few things about him. First of all, he was an Israelite, which meant that he lived under the covenant law that God had given to the Israelites through Moses. The moral laws, the ceremonial laws, the dietary restrictions, and everything else that God commanded Israel through Moses were in full effect. Second, Samson's birth was a miracle in its own right. His parents had been unable to have children until an angel appeared to them and told them that they would have a son who would be a leader in Israel. The angel said that the child would be a Nazarite, a Nazarite from birth. Now the Nazarite vow was a special vow to God that a person would take in order to be set apart for God in some special way. The rules and regulations for regarding the Nazarite vows are listed in Numbers chapter 6. And several of the most important ones were that they were not to touch dead bodies and that they were not to cut their hair during the period of the vow. So since Samson was a Nazarite from birth, his hair was never supposed to be cut. That was the rule. Now the Spirit of God was with Samson and gave him incredible strength. But right away in Judges chapter 14, we can see things start going a little sideways for Samson. The text says, One day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistines, Philistine women, caught his eye. When he returned, his, when he returned home, he told his father and mother, A young Philistine woman in Timnah has caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. okay. His father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry? They asked, why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? Now, God had specifically said in Deuteronomy 7 that the Israelites were not to intermarry with the nations that they were commanded to drive out. For Samson, this was the moral will of God. No question, absolutely clear, no ambiguity. But in this case, Samson exhibited zero discernment. He saw the woman, went home, and said, Yep, she's the one for me. I want to marry her. I'm sure of it. And just like that, in an instant, he was happy to violate God's moral law for him at the drop of a hat. His parents tried to be the truth teller in his life to check his ignorance, but utterly, he utterly ignored their counsel. Later, in the same chapter, we see Samson violating the Nazarite vow by touching a dead carcass because there was honey in it. Personally, if I see a dead lion carcass with honey in it, that's going to be a hard pass for me. But not for Samson. No. He saw it. He wanted it. He took it. He ate it. Zero thought. Zero discernment. God said no. Samson said so? So what? Several chapters later, we see Samson involved with another woman named Delilah who wanted to know the secret of his great strength so she could hand him over to his enemies and get paid. So the story unfolds. She asks Samson for the secret of his great strength. He lies to her and says if he's tied up a certain way, he'll become as weak as any other man. She proceeds to wait until he's asleep and ties him up and magically... When he wakes up, his enemies happen to be there ready to capture them, or to capture him. He snaps the bonds off his arms, fights his attackers, and this scene repeats itself no less than four times. Four times! Now, you might think, after the second time, Samson would start to pick up on the pattern. But you'd be wrong, because Samson is the poster child for the lack of godly discernment. Samson wanted what he wanted and he just didn't care about what God thought or what God said. And it it turns out it's pretty hard to get godly discernment or to have godly discernment when you absolutely ignore what God says. So if Esau's discernment stemmed from the urgency of his desires, then you might say that Samson's lack of discernment was rooted And pride. Samson's obstacle was pride, hubris. Samson couldn't be bothered to seek goodly counsel or seek godly counsel. You couldn't tell him anything. He felt like he just knew better and it didn't matter what anyone else thought, including God. As you read through the account of Samson, you start to see that his decision making was incredibly impetuous, it was fast. He was always in a rush to do what he wanted, to get what he wanted. He never slowed down long enough to allow godly discernment to enter into his decision-making process. In Proverbs 6.18, there's a list of things that that God does not like, things that he hates. And on that list are feet that are quick to rush into evil. That that is Samson to an absolute T. He leaped before he looked. He ran to get what he wanted before he thought. Now, if you're going to develop godly discernment, you have to be willing to slow down and actually allow time and space to actually listen to godly counsel and respond to it. Developing godly discernment requires patience. When we're in a hurry to make quick and hasty decisions, we're not putting ourselves in a position to actually discern anything much less discern what God wants us to do in a given situation. Simply slowing down and actually looking for godly counsel is a small thing. It doesn't take a lot to do it. But the smallies are where we learn to develop godly biblical discernment. So the Israelite spies gave in to fear. Esau gave into the obstacle of his intense craving. Samson gave into the obstacle of his foolhardy pride. And then there's Jonah. Jonah is in an entirely different category than the other three. Jonah was a prophet of God. God spoke to Jonah and then Jonah's job was to carry God's message to the intended recipients to let them know what God said. The book of Jonah in the Old Testament outlines one specific message that God wanted to convey to the Assyrians living in Nineveh. It was a strong message. Of impending judgment, unless the people turned from their wicked ways. Jonah didn't like the the message. He didn't like it one bit because he hated the Assyrians because of what they had done to Israel. The Assyrian army had conquered Israel and deported people away from their homes. There was no love lost between Assyria and Israel. Nevertheless, God had given Jonah a direct message with instructions to deliver it to the people of the city of Nineveh. Jonah's response to God can be summarized in four words. I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that. I don't want to. I ain't doing that. And if you think about it, his response is breathtaking. We'd all like to think that if God spoke to us directly that we'd obey him completely and instantaneously. But Jonah puts the lie to that thought. Jonah knew what he was told to do. There was no ambiguity about it. He knew it and yet he chose to actively resist, actively do the opposite of what God said. There's no way to sugarcoat Jonah. Jonah outright rebelled against God. It's not that Jonah was trying to make a good, better, best type of decision and he needed godly counsel. He had godly counsel from God no less. The discerning thing to do when God clearly speaks to you is to do the thing that he says to do. Jonah's response is downright scary. We can all understand what it's like to to be hungry or even even so full of unfounded and foolish self-confidence or, or to be full of pride that we fail to develop and use godly discernment. But Jonah's different. God said to Jonah, do thus and so. And Jonah basically said, God, I hear you. I know what you're saying. But I just disagree. I disagree. I know what you want me to do, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. It's nothing short of rebellion. God says go this way and we choose to go in the opposite direction, that's a dangerous dangerous place to be. For weeks we've been talking about developing godly wisdom, godly discernment in order to make good and wise decision decisions that align with God's good and perfect will for us. But when we dig in our heels and just decide that we're going to do it our way, in opposition to God's will, we're in a dangerous place. With Jonah, God allowed him to experience the consequences of his rebellion. And he ended up at rock bottom in a dark, stinky, disgusting place. The belly of a giant fish. Now, ultimately, Jonah did come back around. And he delivered the message that God gave to him. But not without a lot of soul searching and a lot of repentance. If you find yourself in Jonah's boat today, fighting with God, fighting against God maybe, let me offer you this word of encouragement. Yesterday may have been a whale of a fight between you and God, but tomorrow doesn't have to be the same way. You can't change what you did yesterday or the day before or the day before that, but you can change what will happen tomorrow by making a good decision today. The road home begins with a repentant spirit, a small but very wise decision to simply say, what I'm doing right now is not working. It's not filling the hole in my life that only God can fill. I'm done running. I'm done fighting. I'm ready to come home to God. I'm ready to repent. I'm ready to start new. And here's the really, really good news. David, in Psalm 51, when he's going through his repentant uh, psalm, tells us something about God. That God does not despise a repentant heart, a repentant spirit. He responds to it. Jonah messed up big, but he recognized his mistake. He repented, and God restored him again. God did it for Jonah, and he wants to do it for us too. The road home starts with a repentant heart, fear,
1: urgency,
0: pride, rebellion. Four great obstacles of developing godly discernment. But these these feelings, these characteristics are not the end of the story. The end of the story is hope. If we're honest about it, we've all been afraid at times. We've all felt deep hunger. We've all had moments of foolish pride. And we've all had moments of outright rebellion. Romans 3.23, a familiar verse, tells us that all of us, every single one of us, has sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard. We've made foolish and sinful choices. But thank God for Jesus. By trusting in him, we're not only forgiven, we now actually have the ability to grow in godly discernment. Because if we have put our faith in Jesus, we have the Spirit of Jesus living in us, teaching us wisdom and discernment. As we look at these four, maybe one of them resonates with where you're at more than the others. Our team is uh, is coming. They're going to lead us uh, in a song as we go into a time of communion and as they're coming, I wanna, I wanna challenge you to think about your life right now. Think about where you're at. What are the things that are causing you the most fear? The highest level of frustration? The deepest dread? Could there be an opportunity that you're missing out on because you only see the obstacle? You only see what's blocking what you think you want? What's your area? of deepest felt, urgent need today. Esau felt like he was starving to death. Where are you feeling empty? In what area are you feeling unfulfilled? At work? At home? In your relationships with other people? Could there be an opportunity to let God fill that need in a way that you have not yet anticipated? Ask him. Ask him to meet the need. Ask him to fill the hunger. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. Sometimes instead of filling ourselves with junk, what we really need most is to ask him to meet the need. Think about Samson. Where might you have a blind spot that you're just not seeing right now? Samson had it all figured out, or at least he thought he did until he got the haircut of his life and paid for it dearly. Seeing our blind spot is not easy. I suppose that's why we need truth-tellers in our lives, to help us see what we're not seeing. And lastly, where is there a fight between you and God right now? Can you point to an area where you know what he says, but you're just resisting him? The choices of yesterday do not have to be the choices of tomorrow. But we can't go on fighting him forever. At some point, the fighting has to stop. And we need to agree with him that he's the authority. He's the creator. We're the created. His way really is best. It really is best. The road home starts with repentance. Uh, we're going to go to a uh, time of communion right now. There's uh, tables at the front and the back, gluten-free on the stage, and then the center table at the, at the middle. Uh, let's let's contemplate and think about these things as we as we go